powered by Transistor FM. Welcome to Friends, Foes, and Neither. Do not adjust your podcatcher settings, as what you are about to hear is real. It's the Derek Duvall Show. Prepare yourself for insightful interviews with incredible people. Join us now as we delve ever deeper into the human condition. And now, coming to you live to tape from the Derek Duvall Production Bunker, it's Derek Duvall! Hello, Duvall Nation. Hello! Hey, everybody. Hi. Thank you so much. Please, everyone, sit. Thank you. Hello, Duvall Nation, and welcome to the Derek Duvall Show. We are back with another fantastic journey into the lives of extraordinary people. This episode is brought to you today by the fine folks at BetterHelp. BetterHelp is the world's largest therapy service and it's 100% online. Get 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com slash Derek Duvall Show. That's better, H-E-L-P.com slash Derek Duvall Show. So before we jump into this episode, I want to say a big thank you to my last guest, Nikki Klug. What a great guest. And if you have not heard our very in-depth interview, I strongly advise you to check it out after the conclusion of this episode. So welcome to episode 212, and we have an absolutely rocking episode lined up for you today. We have on the show the legendary Jack Hughes. Now, Jack is one of the founding members of the 80s British new wave rock band Wang Chung. Jack will discuss his origins, how he got into music, his rise to stardom, the formation of the band Wang Chung, the highs and lows of success, various hit songs, the breakup of the band, and so much more. This is a fantastic discussion and no stone is left unturned, so let's get Jack out here. Duval Nation, please welcome to the show, calling in today from his home in Canterbury, England, rock legend Jack Hughes. Jack, hello, welcome to the Derek Duval Show. How is the weather out by you today? It's kind of sunny and nice. It's uh, I always say to people who want to visit England, come in the first couple of weeks of October. It's, it's the weather's the nicest. So yeah. with the pandemic now coming to an end, how was it for you to navigate the COVID-19 world? <clears throat> I guess being a writer, you know, an artist, uh, I was able to sort of navigate it fairly easily, really. You know, I, it sent me into myself it, it it just felt like there was a lot more time actually to write and record and <clears throat> I, I released a, a, a second solo album <laughs> with the sort of burning embers of the first solo album that was still uh, lying around you know so uh yeah I got through it okay uh, I mean obviously that's a very insular way of looking at it I, I get that it was terrible for a lot of people and the uh, uh, fallout from it is uh you know has changed the world a great deal so every journey has a beginning. Uh, what was it like to grow up in Gillingham, Kent? Yeah, Gillingham, we call it. Yeah. Gillingham, I apologize. Yeah, yeah. It was a bit of a navy town, actually. Um, there was a big uh, dockyard in Gillingham that used to, uh, they had nuclear, nuclear submarines there. And um, and that was the main kind of employer in the town, I suppose. So it was a fairly uh, gritty <clears throat> sort of working class kind of town, you know, uh, close enough to London to let there sort of be nothing much going on. You know, it's like people who wanted culture and stuff. It was a sort of 45 minute to an hour train ride, I guess, in those days, you know. 
I guess in those days it was sort of quiet as well. Of course, I was growing up through the 60s, early 70s, uh, when music was the absolute kind of arrowhead of cultural development. And uh, so I was, um, you know, started learning guitar when I was about eight years old and sort of obsessed with music um, from, from, from that age, you know. Who were your early musical influences? Well, uh, the Beatles, obviously, through the 60s and living in the UK. You know, they were present in the cultural scene in a way that you can't really imagine now. You know, um, the, the cultural scene now is, is very fractured and there's all sorts of different things and, and everything is bracketed under entertainment, if you like, you know. But I think the Beatles felt something like more than it, entertainment. It was more of an education, <laughs> really, you know. Uh, and that was both musically in terms of the complexity of their songwriting as it involved and also the way they used the studio uh, and the way they presented themselves as well. Um, this very sort of authentic way of presenting themselves, which was very different to the sort of showbiz world that, that everybody accepted before them, you know. Hmm. So at what age did you decide, you know, you wanted to pursue music enough to attend Goldsmith College? I guess, um, I, you know, music was always my first thing, my passion, if I want of a better word. Uh, and so there was never really any, any, any doubt that I wanted to do music. And I was, I guess that single mindedness paid off in the in the sense that I, there was never a plan B, <laughs> if you know what I mean. Um but I guess when I hit 18, you know, I finished school. My parents had not been to university, so they were keen for me to go. And really, I was still interested in music. That was my thing. So I thought, well, I'll do music at university. But in those days, that meant you really had to study classical music. There was no jazz courses or, you know, certainly no rock courses. So I managed to, I, I got rejected from three or four different places because I knew nothing about classical music. But I got into Goldsmith's college which in those days was a slightly sort of a you know left-leaning advanced kind of place i suppose although the music department was quite conventional but a lot of interesting artists came out of goldsmith slightly after i was there actually but the sort of damien hurst some british artists who dominated the, the sort of 90s really all went to goldsmith what are your favorite memories from the royal college of music well that was a strange place you know i'd, I'd spent my three years at goldsmith doing an undergraduate degree you know and at the end of that i <clears throat> to cut a long story short, I won a competition. It was like the BBC ran these competitions for young composers, and I'd written these songs for a soprano voice and piano, <clears throat> and they they won this competition, the prize of which was to have your work performed and broadcast on the radio. Uh, and out of that, my composition teacher managed to get me a, a sort of course at the Royal College of Music. Uh, so I studied with him, and I also studied electronic music. And I guess what I got from the Royal College was that I didn't fit in, <laughs> basically. Um, you know, being a working class kid, I know I don't seem very working class these days. I don't speak with the right accent anymore. <laughs> um, but I got that I was in a world of um, uh, people from a very different black background from me, you know, quite a privileged background. And um, <clears throat> people who are really into classical music uh, knew nothing about, and nor were they interested in rock music pop music you know mm. and i've always felt um it's, it's changed now i think young musicians grow up into a much more sort of multi-cultural multi-genre sort of world but back then uh it was quite ghettoized you know classical music was one thing they did, had no regard for jazz or pop music or film music or anything else you know yeah it was it was a kind of strange time you know but I, but i lived a lot of life while i was there <laughs> you know i was uh living in a sort of squat really with a an artist friend of mine and um and we we had a lot of fun together hmm. at what age did you change your name to jack hughes 
that was really when I met Nick, uh, Nick Feldman, that is who's the other half of Wang Chung. <clears throat> and uh, and I wrote this song called I'm Jack Hughes, which came out of um, a conversation with a friend of mine in those days in, in the sort of 78, 77, 78, I guess there were all these punk bands, all of whom, you know, Joe Strummer, um, Sting, um, uh, who else, you know, Sid Vicious, Johnny Rotten, you know, everybody had these ridiculous names. And uh, so Nick and I both took on ridiculous names. And this friend of mine was sort of saying, oh, Jacques, which is the French for I accuse you of, <laughs> usually of hypocrisy. <laughs> uh, that would be of, you know, Jack Hughes would be a funny, funny name. So I sort of took that on and uh, wrote this song and <clears throat> and everybody sort of met me as Jack and, and it sort of stuck and it was easier to be called Jack than it was to be called Jeremy, which was my real name. And being in a sort of punk band, being called Jeremy didn't really work in those days. So uh, mm. so Jack keeps kind of stuck. Very nice. Oh, Tell man. my listeners about the adver advertisement, you know, in Melody Maker in 77 and how you met Nick Feldman. Yeah. Well, that was, I guess, the realisation after I'd been to the Royal College, you know, that I wasn't going to be able to be a composer, you know. Uh, it, I didn't have the connections. I didn't know orchestral musicians or conductors. You know, there's a whole world uh, that you have to be plugged into as there is whatever, well, almost whatever thing you choose to do in life. You know, your networks are very important. But in the arts, it's probably more important than anywhere else, you know. Uh, and so I, I sort of got back into playing in bands. I played in a few bands in Gillingham but realized that I, I needed to be in London and, and I just did a whole bunch of auditions and uh, and the audition with Nick uh, came through uh, an ad in Melody Maker which was a sort of there was the New Musical Express the NME and the Melody Maker they were the two music papers in the in the UK at that time and uh, yeah I answered this ad and met with Nick I remember he was working with a drummer called Paul Hammond and Paul had been in a band called Atomic Rooster and uh, Paul was uh, one of the best drummers I ever worked with, I think, you know, just an amazing feel. And so I loved what he was doing. I love what Nick was doing. The, the kind of way he was writing songs was this weird mix of punk energy and sort of jazzy chords, you know. And uh, so we, we hit it off pretty much straight away. And um, and we've been good friends, you know, even through the, the breakup of Wang Chung, when we sort of couldn't really be in a room with each other for a while. <laughs> We never lost the ability to kind of have a laugh with each other, you know. And, uh, you know, we're brothers, me and Nick. Mm. Together you formed the bands The Intellectuals and 57 Men. How did Darren Carsten appear in the picture? Well, Intellectuals was the first band I had with Nick. And we were rehearsing in this uh, great studio in the East End called Easy Street Studios, uh, where there were a lot of bands, a whole, whole scene going on, really. And Darren's band, I think they were called Blue Wind. Uh, they were they were playing like um, <clears throat> Earth, Wind and Fire covers <laughs> and uh, like really quite funky technical stuff you know and um and he was into what we were doing and we were into his band so there was darren there was also lee gorman in that band who went on to form bow wow wow and uh and so lee and darren kind of quit their their earth wind and fire band and joined me and nick in this band called 57 men and uh, that also had glenn gregory on vocals who went on to form heaven 17 you know so th there was a scene in london at that time and all the musicians were sort of floating around and I guess it was um, slightly different to the years before because it had sort of, I think with the advent of drum machines and, and synths, that in a sense, there was no longer any need for a band. <laughs> so you tended to have the songwriters as the core musicians, and then they would assemble a music musicians around them. And I guess that's what Nick and uh, I did. And also Darren. Darren was a writer at that time as well, you know. And um, so, yes, yeah, so 57 Men was... Um, 
we did some gigs and stuff, but it was, as the name suggests, it was too many cooks mm. and too many broths, <laughs> <laughs> different ideas, really, you know. <laughs> mm. Talk us through how you decided to form, you know, what would be known and as Hong Chung. Yes. <laughs> well, that basically came out of a sort of slightly despairing sense of, you know, because back in those days, you would form a band, you you'd rehearse, <clears throat> usually rehearsing some self written songs you know that that was always part of it uh then you'd um maybe do some yeah do some demos uh of those songs and go out and gig and the record companies would come to the the pubs in in london and and sort of check you out basically you know and we did this a couple of times with the intellectuals then with 57 men we got a lot of interest but we never really got signed you know so uh i i said to nick well look because uh, at that time nick was playing guitar i was like he sort of backup as it were guitar and um I said, look, I'm going to sing, play guitar. You play bass. Darren plays drums. We strip it right down, you know, so that it's the opposite of 57 men. And um, <clears throat> I'll, I'll write some songs and we won't gig. <laughs> we'll just submit the, the demos, you know. Uh, and Nick wrote, wrote as well, actually, you know. Um, but it was definitely a sort of, we we wouldn't, we'd be slightly anonymous, you know. And Huang Chang, I think, we we got ourselves a little independent deal, basically, with this guy who, worked in the same office as our manager. He loved this track called Isn't About Time We Were On TV. And um, he released that as a single. And in those days, I guess it was the first time that the the major labels were really challenged by lots of little upstart labels, you know, or startup labels, uh, all, all doing these crazy punk bands, you know. And um, yeah, so they got us off the ground. And from there, we got a deal with Arista uh, in London. And th that was our first sort of um, jump into the into the big time, if you like. What do you remember from recording that first debut album? Uh, we recorded with Rhett Davis. Rhett was um, a producer who had worked with Roxy Music a lot, mm. and we worked the Roxy albums. And uh, and Rhett was a great guy, um, very creative producer who worked a lot with uh, uh, the uh, Roland Space Echo. People who listen to your show who are old enough and into music might know that bit of kit, uh, but almost everything went through the Roland Space Echo at one point, you know. Uh, but he got a great sound. I love the sound that he got for Nick's bass, actually, because Nick Nick was playing a fretless bass in those days, and he gets this really kind of um, wowing kind of sound. It, just just great. And we worked at Basing Street Studios, which was a place in Notting Hill. Um, yeah, funky London studio, but you know, really good. It was hard work, and all the sort of tensions, if you like, of making your first album came to the surface you know which is i guess one of the main things as a writer is you have a certain thing in your head about how you want it to sound and then there's how it actually sounds <laughs> and then there's there's a sort of gap between those two things usually and it, and it takes a while probably takes three or four albums for you to get used to the idea that you, you don't control everything in your head it's all out there and you have to respond to it you know so <laughs> why did the band change their name to wang chung just practicalities, really. David Geffen, <clears throat> when we signed, we we got away from Arista because we felt they didn't really understand the band. I suppose. I mean, who knows what they understood? But uh, we we got away from them and signed to Geffen Records in Los Angeles. So there was a sense by uh, our new manager, David Massey, when we left Arista, we we met, we hooked up with David, and um, <clears throat> he sort of said, "Look." because you're so sort of musical, <laughs> um, that doesn't go down well in England. It's different now, but back then, uh, the, the press were not impressed with guys who could play. In fact, they kind of thought, you know, you've got it too easy. You know what you're doing. <clears throat> There's no mystery here, you know. But of course, in the States, people 
really appreciated the fact that you could play you know uh and so there was there was you know even with the name you know it was you know david geffen's sense will change it to wang chung so that people could say it you know our sense was we, we should change it completely to a sort of a, at least an english word you know <laughs> um but he, he was like no no it's a great name just just make it simple for people you know which is kind of what we did hmm. how important was mtv in the success of dancehall days huge <clears throat> it was huge in this the whole presence of wang chung in people's lives uh was uh you know five years before it would be inconceivable that wang chung made the impression that it did you know i think uh, mtv was absolutely key to our success and then this, the next question is and this is uh probably one of the biggest questions i think i'll probably ask in this interview is you know just how important was everybody have fun tonight and the success of the band's discography and are you still amazed it did as well as it did yeah, <clears throat> uh, I'm not saying I expected it to do well, you know, but we were definitely uh, under a lot of pressure to to make a hit record. You know, we worked with Peter Wolf um, on that record. Peter had done. Uh, we built this city on rock and roll previously, and also records with Heart. And you know, he was a known as a sort of hit producer. You know, and we decided to work with him as opposed to a more kind of arty producer, if you like, because previous to everybody had fun. We done to live and die in LA, the soundtrack, you know. And although that um, is perceived these days as probably our best work in some ways, you know, at the time it was a bit of a commercial flop. So the, the record company were even more insistent that, that we had a number one hit. That's the game in town. Do you know what I mean? It's like you know, you're a band, you're signed to a label, you, you're a number one band or buy <laughs> sort of thing. So doing Everybody Have Fun Tonight, it was, I don't want to say contrived, but we, we definitely designed it to be a hit record, you know. Uh, I think... It wasn't so much surprising at the time that it was a, a big success. I mean, being number one, that that was great and everything. Well, technically number two, weren't we? Um, but um, but I think what's more surprising is the longevity of it and the fact that people still love it and that it has this kind of iconic uh, status in, in you know that's people's sense of the eighties. You know? What is it like to play that song live at a concert? It's great. You know, it, uh, people love it. We build our set towards it, you know. Um, I guess the more recent shows we've been doing have been these sort of like 80s package tours. And, um, yeah, I'd, I'd say of all the songs that get played, Dance All Days and um, Everybody Have Fun Tonight, uh, they're great show closers, do you know what I mean? We've been headlining the most recent uh, set of dates. And, um, yeah, mm. I, I think people go home very happy. <laughs> Mosiac was a massive hit. You know, whose idea was to cover the album? Because it, it was incredibly mm. original. Yeah, um, I forget the name of the art director, but he was working with these sort of pixelated digital images, which was in those days like a very new thing, you know. Um, I, I wanted it to be more abstract, really, you know. Um, so, I mean, it was called Mosaic because of the uh, the sense of the fragments of the songs. You know, I mean, when Nick and I wrote, we wrote very different styles in a sense, you know. So I wanted it to sort of reflect this kind of sense of, different materials if you like being stuck into one thing you know but the the label obviously wanted it to be a, a an album cover with their faces on it you know so that was the sort of compromise uh, that we came up with you know? who were some of your favorite bands to tour with um <clears throat> well back in the day we did a big tour with the cars um that was the heartbeat city tour in 84 and that was an amazing experience you know uh we were playing huge venues and and they were pretty much sold out and because dance all days in 84 was a huge hit you know a proper hit uh 
the, the the stadiums were pretty much full when we went on. You know, sometimes, you know, you go, a support band comes on and people are in the bar and they kind of shuffling around <clears throat> and, and are really only there to see the main band. But um, people came out to see us. And again, that I think that made a big uh, difference to the, the perception of the band as it is now, you know, because a lot of people saw that too, you know. And then in 80s, Seven, I think it was. We did uh, Tina Turner's. Um, I forget which tour it was, but it was you know when she'd had "I Can't Stand the Rain" and all those kind of <clears throat> super duper songs that she did, you know. And uh, so again, that was another big stadium tour, you know. Mm. So I'd say those two were great. But we did um, in the very early days of Huang Chung, we were touring with the, the Human League when they had Dare out, and that I, I loved doing that tour. That was great. That was a UK thing, you know. Tina Turner was a big loss. I remember that was a, a, yeah. that was a devastating loss to music. Yeah, absolutely. Um, a friend of mine was there was a show in the UK called Top of the Pops, um, which was like the one and only uh, right. sort of music show on the BBC in those days. <clears throat> and I remember we did it twice with Dance uh, All Days. And the second occasion, Tina Turner was on before us. So in that show, it's a TV show, you know, so she's singing her songs while we're setting up on another stage. Do you know what I mean? And in those days, the, the, the vocalist had to sing live. So you, the backing track was pre-recorded, but the, the vocal had to be live, you know? And I remember listening to her sing, I, fit, I think the song was called Help, actually. And uh, and I was just blown away by her voice. It, like it didn't need a microphone in the room. Do you know what I mean? It was like filled the room and her presence and her whole kind of vibe. Which was from this different stratosphere of uh, artist. <laughs> you know, it, it was amazing. You know, so, you know, uh, no, great loss. You know, it's funny you say. You know, you grew up in the '60s. You know, and what have you? You listen to these iconic, you know, musicians. Have you ever had a chance to meet any of these musicians that you grew up listening to? Yeah, um, <clears throat> I mean, I, I worked with uh, Tony Banks. Uh, Genesis were one of the bands that I. Uh, really loved when I was a kid. I I can really remember playing Watcher of the Skies before I went to school every every day for like about six months. Uh, you know, before getting the school bus sort of thing, it kind of got me through the day really. You know, and um and I did an album with Tony. He he was doing a solo album, uh, and he wanted to create this band which he called Strictly Ink. Uh, and we just did one album. I did all the vocals and wrote some of the lyrics for him. But that was an incredible experience working with a, a sort of childhood hero if you like well not so much childhood but you know in my teens they were a band i really respected you know and the sound they had <clears throat> just working in the studio and watching him get those sounds you know was, was great you know uh did re meet paul mccartney one time um and that was when we were recording uh we, we basically finished points on the curve which is the album with dance all days and um don't let go on it and um we'd sort of Obviously, in the days before the internet, you know, we'd, we'd sent the, the music over to Geffen in LA and they'd had a listen and they came back to us and sort of said, yeah, it's great, but Dance with Days, just do a bit more work on it, you know. So I think they just wanted to see whether we could get it any better or if, if it was, if that's how it was, it was fine. But, you know, so we went into the studio called Air Studios, which is a studio that George Martin, the Beatles producer, used to own. Um, and it was above uh, Top Shop in Oxford Street. So if you if you live in the UK, you know where that is. But it's basically about as central London as you can get, you know. And um, we were working there. And Nick, who's a left-handed bass player, had, had not brought his bass along. And Chris Hughes, our producer on that album, 
So I said, we should work on the bass a bit, I think, you know. So I jokingly said, oh, McCartney's working down the hallway. Maybe we could borrow one of his basses, you know. And halfway through the afternoon, the door opened to our studio and McCartney walked right up with me with his bass. And said, <laughs> you wanted to borrow the bass. And uh, I just couldn't speak to him. Do you know what I mean? It's like, <laughs> I just wanted to kind of, I don't know what I wanted to do, you know, tell him that I wouldn't be standing where I was if it wasn't for him, you know. But I think maybe a lot of people try and tell him that, you know. So. Right. <laughs> That's amazing. Okay, Devon Nation, we are going to go ahead and take a small break right here, but we will be right back with the conclusion of this interview with rock legend Jack Hughes. May I suggest you take this time to refresh that drink and take some super long deep breaths. You know that's right, Cluzo style. Out with the bad air, in with the good. Out with the bad air, in with the good. Pay attention to a few friends of my show and we will be right back. Hello Duval Nation, Derek Duval here. Mental health is not only a top priority in my life, but it should be in yours too. As a combat military veteran, I have seen what untreated mental health looks like, which is why I've been using a therapist for well over a decade. Seeing a trusted therapist has helped me reconcile life events and other important things I've been witness to since returning home from the service and has changed my life for the better in many ways. Which is why going forward I am pleased to announce that BetterHelp will be sponsoring The Derek Duval Show. BetterHelp is the world's first therapy service and it's 100% online. With BetterHelp, you can tap into a network of over 30,000 licensed and experienced therapists who can help you with a wide range of issues. To get started, you just answer a few questions about your needs and preferences in therapy. That way, BetterHelp can match you with the right therapist from their network. Then, you can talk to your therapist however you feel comfortable, whether it's via text, chat, phone, or video call. You can message your therapist at any time and schedule live sessions when it's convenient for you. If your therapist isn't the right fit for any reason, you can switch to a new therapist at no additional charge. With BetterHelp, you get the same professionalism and quality you can expect from in-office therapy, but with a therapist who is custom-picked for you. More scheduling flexibility and at a more affordable price. Get 10% off your first month at BetterHelp.com slash Derek Duvall Show. That's BetterHelp.com slash Derek Duvall Show. Hi, this is Glenn. And this is Sonia from Echo Valley. And you are listening to The Derek Duval Show. Here's a song called Faces in the Mirror from our album Anarchy and Alchemy. Enjoy listening to podcasts and ever wonder, can I make a podcast? But it seems so complicated and good audio production can take time. What if there was a way to create an amazing podcast easily? Well, now there is. Introducing Podcasting Made Easy from Podtastic Audio. My production team will handle your entire audio production, allowing you to be the star of your show. This is podcasting made easy. How easy? Well, so easy, you don't even have to press record. Now that's easy. Your listeners are waiting. Let's deliver. Sign up for a free strategy call today at podcasticaudio.com slash easy. Hey, it's Michelle Fabre, and you're listening to The Derek Duval Show. You can hear my brand new single, I'm All That I Need, on all streaming platforms right now. Cause I'm all that I need to get by. 
Teachers, do you ever have these feelings or have been told these things? Do you want Kleenex for your classroom? Maybe you should think about buying your own with your own money. You get the summer off, you can have a second job. Do you really need a pay raise? Oh, do you need to use the restroom? Maybe you can do that in the three minutes while students are changing classes. Boy, sure hope your room doesn't descend into Lord of the Flies in that time. Oh, things are going pretty good for one. Surprise! Budget cuts. Well, you're in luck because we've got a book just for you. Hi, everyone. It's Katie Kinder, educator, speaker, and author of Untold Teaching Truths. I invite you to purchase my book and join this journey as we talk about the wild world of public education. Part memoir, part strategy. It is available on BookBaby, Amazon, or wherever books are sold. Teach on Warriors. We've got this. Janae Sergio, arriving. Hello everyone, this is Janae Sergio, life coach, combat veteran, and best-selling author. I invite you to purchase my new book, Perfectly Flawed, a veteran's journey from homeless to hero. In these pages, you will learn about the lowest struggles of my life to the absolute triumphs that have made me the strong woman I am today. Follow along as I talk about homelessness, my naval role in Operation Enduring Freedom, navigating insurmountable odds, and how I dealt with and overcame them. You can find Perfectly Flawed on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or wherever books are sold. Welcome back to episode 212 of the Derek Duvall Show. Let's get right back to it with the conclusion of our interview with one of the founders of the 80s British new wave rock band, Wang Chung, Jack Hughes. Why did Wang Chung break up in 91? <clears throat> I think we just reached a point, personally, Nick and I, I had different visions for the band. You know, I think I wanted it to be... A, more kind of arty sort of uh i don't know what sort of band really somewhere between yes and talking heads or something in it and uh and nick had a, i think had a more kind of practical sense of it being a more of a sort of american rock band sort of thing uh whatever it was anyway we, we were sort of writing into two different places but more importantly i think the 80s were over by then you know and the musical landscape had changed you know geffen had signed guns and roses and nirvana they were selling, you know, shed loads of records, and and you were so you either went down that road or you got into sort of rap and hip hop and down that road, which would have been possible, I suppose, and into into the sort of dance scene. Uh, Nick, I think, was much more adaptable to that than I was, but I never really sort of, you know, I'm a musician and I like to play and and I like to have a bit of space to sort of jam and improvise and stuff you know what I mean and 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 the dance thing never really appealed to me from that you know I don't particularly like listening to just you know so yeah. tell my listeners about illuminated yeah illuminated was um I guess <clears throat> when I moved to I moved out of London in around about the end of the 90s I suppose and I came to live here in Canterbury and met up with some jazz musicians to to put it simply but but Canterbury has a tradition of these sort of weird bands that were sort of like a mixture of um, sort of rock music and and jazz. So the, the the main band to listen to would be like Soft Machine, a band called Soft Machine. And there, there were lots of others, Hatfield in the North. Um, uh, he says lots of others and can't think of them, but Egg was another one. Um, there, there were a whole load of these bands that were sort of um, <clears throat> rock, 
if, if Yes and Genesis, Pink Floyd, those sorts of bands were somehow a sort of mixture of rock and classical music, then Soft Machine, Hatfield and the North and the others were a mixture of rock and, and jazz, you know. And that tradition, even though the, there really aren't any bands like that in Canterbury, that sort of tradition somehow persists, you know. Uh, and I met up with a piano player called Sam Bailey, who's a sort of trained classical player, but rather like me, drifted into jazz and improvisation. And uh, and we spent a lot of time just jamming together in my house, really. He'd come round and we'd play Thelonious Monk tunes and Charlie Parker and stuff. And, and we started doing some gigs and <clears throat> we were really awful <laughs> to begin with, you know, because jazz is not my natural language at all, you know. But but I started writing my own stuff, much as I'd done when I was a kid with rock music. You know, the, I, I try to play things and make mistakes and think, Oh, that, that's pretty good, actually. <laughs> Maybe I could make my own thing out of that, you know. And uh, same thing happened. And so Illuminated is an album of my sort of jazz uh, sketches. And and it actually, it's pretty good. I think, you know, I um, at the time, I think I felt a little bit kind of, oh, I'm a bit out of my depth here. But actually, as an artist, it's kind of good to be out of your depth, you know. Uh, and once you can get back for far enough from it and see what seemed like kind of a slightly shaky mistake, kind of things they actually sound pretty good you know so um and i've sort of worked on with that project um jack hughes and the quartet i call that and released an album last october of a live uh, show that we did um, back in i think it was 2017 something like that mm. uh, which i'm proud of you know it's um again jazz is very different from playing in rock bands you know with rock bands everything's pretty much set in stone you you play the shows you play the songs pretty much the same every night you know i try and do i mean i never work out my solos guitar solos and stuff so <laughs> they vary sometimes they're terrible and sometimes they're okay you know um, but with the jazz thing uh you go out and apart from having a vague sketchy sense of the main riffs and, and melodies of certain tunes you know uh, it it's very different every night you know and um so that's something that i really enjoy I was going to ask later on, but I'll just bring it up now. You know, you did write that new single since 2017. Tell yeah, my listeners yeah. about it. Yeah. <clears throat> so that's, uh, I, I did a couple of solo albums. Um, I guess prior to the pandemic, actually, I did this double album called Primitive, which was a sort of outpouring of very personal songs, but also my desire to kind of, um, I guess, do a double album to, to sort of, I, I was just in the, in the in the headspace actually to try and uh, deliver on my promise to myself to sort of do the white album <laughs> <basically>. <laughs> and um you know I, I was in quite a sort of uh, difficult emotional space at that point and uh, and that of course the upside to difficult emotions as a songwriter is that you're getting a lot of ideas and uh, you know um so so i sort of sort of worked on that you know <clears throat> and um so so I got into this whole thing of working at home on albums and then working with some local musicians, uh, a drummer called Josh McGill and a producer, sort of engineer guy called Joel, Joel McGill, two brothers. And um, they've helped me a lot with both of these solo albums I did. And then at the beginning of this year, I started writing again. As a writer, I get these sort of bursts of energy, you know, and have a whole burst of energy. And I've always been fascinated by the UFO subject or the UAP subject, as they now call it. And... Uh, uh, and during the summer, there was this, this uh, as I'm sure some of your listeners know, these uh, congressional hearings about UFOs, UAPs, uh, that was sort of sparked in part by uh, an article in the New York Times in 2017, where the Pentagon essentially said, UFOs are real, 
Um, we just don't know what they are, you know. And that's a sort of massive shift in emphasis from them saying they're not real <laughs> and we don't know what they are, sort of thing, you know. So instead of people being told they're crazy, basically, uh, they're being told, well, you're not crazy, you are seeing things, but we don't know what they are, you know. So I, I tried, I, I wrote a song that tried to encapsulate my interest in the subject uh, and try and sort of like the, the lyric sort of pushes at a few of the, the ramifications of the subject, you know, like how if, if they are real and if they are uh, some other sort of non-human intelligence, uh, I'm not saying they're necessarily from other planets and stuff. Uh, um, maybe they're, they're here, <laughs> uh, but there's definitely something going on. And the ramifications of that as, as human beings and what that will be like to really uh, have a sort of consensus reality that admitted uh, that kind of stuff into it, you know. I ask every musician who comes on my show this next question, you know, what are your opinions on streaming services? <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. I, I see it from two perspectives, really, because on the one hand, for Wang Chung, it's pretty good, you know, because uh, Wang Chung is what they call a legacy act, <laughs> you know. So even though we get paid much less per play, there are a lot more plays. If you see what I mean, there's a lot more opportunities for the music to get used digitally around the world. And computers are pretty good at tracking when it gets used, you know. So uh, I'd say our, our royalties have sort of improved. But I also get that uh, if I had, had never done Wang Chung and I was relying on uh, income from Primitive and my jazz stuff, and, you know, admittedly, they're far lower volume of sales, but uh, I, I I wouldn't see any kind of noticeable income from streaming services, you know. Uh, and one puts quite a lot of work into promoting them on these services and stuff, you know, um, for for very little return. So I have mixed feelings about it, you know. On, on the one hand, I think, well, yeah, everybody can get their music heard now, you know. But I also get that there's so much music and so much noise that getting noticed is extremely difficult, you know. And you have to get noticed by doing other stuff you know not musical stuff you know but you could argue that ever has it been thus you know it's um it's never been just about the music it's about how you look it's about what you've got to say as well <laughs> you know and that's as it should be you know in in your eyes why mm -hmm. does wang chung the music of wang chung continue to appeal to not just you know older generation but also younger oh. listeners as well yeah, that's a nice question. Um, <clears throat> I'd like to think that it's that the songs have a kind of um, how can I put it, an existence of their own, <laughs> if you like. You know, I think sometimes you know music's a very strange thing in that it's very nebulous. You know, you can't touch it and can't, can't sort of like take it and put it somewhere. You know, so it relies on the on the music being played and um, and I think for whatever reason, you know the. I guess a lot to do with the music being used in movies and stuff. I think that's added to the to sort of longevity. And I guess in that sense, uh, the music's always tied to the 80s, you know. But I think when people come and hear us play live, they hear the songs. Well, for a start, they sort of connect songs together that perhaps they hadn't really connected together before. Um, so they'll maybe be big fans of Everybody Have Fun Tonight and Dance With Days, but they won't sort of remember To Live and Die in LA. Or they perhaps have certainly never heard Space Junk, um, you know, which was a song we released in 97 that was used in The Walking Dead uh, and became like a big, I mean, it was never a single or anything like that, but it, you know, on Spotify, it has a lot of plays and people have done videos for it and all that kind of stuff, you know. So um, 
Yeah, I, I guess I don't know is the honest answer to your, to your question. But I like to think that the songs are well crafted and that they kind of have a sort of life of their own and uh, and hopefully they'll continue on into the future. What has been the, you know, you mentioned the movies. What has been your favorite use of your music in the film or television show? I think I have to say To Live and Die in LA was the most satisfying thing because we were doing the whole score to the film as, as well as the title song, you know. And I've told the story many, many times, but, you know, initially the conversation about the music was predicated on the idea that we wouldn't write a song, you know, that that's not what Bill Friedkin wanted. He wanted instrumental music <clears throat> modelled on a song called Wait, which is from Points on the Curve, you know. So we did all that initially, but once I'd been over to LA and sat with him and watched a rough cut of the film, the Still Live and Die in LA just sort of came out, you know, and, uh, and he very generously sort of loved it you know didn't say i said i didn't want a song you know he basically said it's brilliant i i'm going to reshoot the front of the movie and and, and to incorporate it so that, that was wonderful so uh yeah i i still think the the music and, and that movie are very well matched and meshed together but uh yeah, to be honest, I guess I don't know the other movies, particularly where the, the songs have been used. You know, I kind of like The Walking Dead and The Space Junk. I, I like how it works in that, you know. And mm -hmm. uh, yeah, so that's all very cool. Fair enough. Mm -hmm. So Pierre de Coupetan said the most important thing in life is not the triumph, but the struggle. You get a chance to talk to your younger self. What would be the one thing you would like to say to him? Um, <clears throat> I think relax. It <laughs> 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 would be okay. <laughs> Um, but I think also I'd say collaborate. Uh, I would say, you know, <clears throat> be more generous with letting other people in, uh, let other people help you, uh, let other people bring their contribution. You know, I, th I think in the 80s, I was probably quite insular, you know, uh, and I, I'm sure that contributed to, to Nick and I finding it difficult to work together. I think we're both a bit like that, actually. We both think we know best <laughs> for our work sort of thing, you know. I think my experiences of working with jazz musicians, especially, and also my interest in in jazz, you know, that, that I listen to quite a lot of, you know, the classic stuff, Miles Davis, Charlie Mingus, Thelonious Monk, um, Ornette Coleman, especially, you know, and I get the collaborative nature of how those bands work, you know, how they choose great musicians, throw them together in a, in a circus ring kind of thing, and, and everybody's brings their thing to it and and it's really exciting you know uh so yeah that's what i'd say to my younger self uh, relax and collaborate <laughs> real real quick question i want to deviate real fast before before we get into the final questions is is jazz still alive or is jazz dying <laughs> i think it's alive probably more alive now in some ways than ever and certainly in london there's a really thriving jazz scene you know i think the musicians uh, like everywhere else in the world, find it very hard to make a living out of being a jazz musician. Uh, I think that's probably been the case since like the Beatles arrived. <laughs> really, you know. Yeah, I, I think as a as a sort of proving ground for young musicians, it's, it's exciting. And um, and certainly in the sort of two thousands when I was making that Illuminated album, there were some really great um, bands around, you know. And there were some great, you know. I'm, I'm a big fan of Brad Meldow, who's a jazz piano player, very contemporary supreme musician he's just released a, an album of beatles covers i suppose which which i think is just incredible really lovely you know yeah i i think um you know if i was a young kid at music college i think i would choose the jazz route rather than the classical route and uh yeah just 
as with everything in music, it's just like keep going, keep doing it. <laughs> you know, George Benson. Uh, there, oh, was yeah. a, a, the, a, the, there was a, a jazz album I have, The Other Side mm -hmm. of Abbey Road by George Benson. I remember that okay. one. That's yeah, a good one. Yeah, that's very smooth. All that stuff. You know, I, I guess I was well, am into the crazier, more dissonant sort of jazz. You know the. Yeah. The spinal tap, he says, you know, jazz is just wrong notes. That's I kind of like that. Jazz. Right. <laughs> right. So apart from the release of the new single, what's next for Jack? Next for Jack, I think, is um, we're in the process of getting this, um, uh, what's the word, reissues of all the Wang Chung, the six studio, Wang Chung studio albums, and we want to release those in deluxe editions. Uh, and um, we're sort of on the verge of pulling that off, uh, getting a deal. You know, fans have been very patient, you know, because it's been going on for ages. But we've been looking for a label that is going to promote the work, you know, rather than just release it into an already flooded marketplace. You know? um, so there's certain things that we want to happen for, for those releases. Uh, and, and we found a company that are willing to do that, you know. Uh, so we're working on a tour for next year. Uh, to promote all this stuff, and um, and we're working on a, on a. It will begin with a sort of greatest hits album, which will be a, a very much oriented around vinyl, uh, double vinyl album. So there'll be some hits, but there'll also be some deep cuts from this the upcoming deluxe editions, where we're going to be sort of releasing all the songs that were never released at the time and uh, studio alternative takes and even some songs that we recorded in the studio that we didn't ever release. You know, so uh, I think. Um, the kind of nerdy diehard fans will be very pleased with that. And hopefully people who don't know so much about Wang Chung will get attracted to sort of explore the whole range of what we're attempting because love us or hate us. I think we were always having a go. <laughs> we were always trying to sort of to, to get something. We didn't always succeed, you know, but we were always trying to sort of like push the envelope in one way or another. That's amazing. So as we enter the final phase of the interview, I always like to ask one fun question, Jack, what mm -hmm. do you like to do for fun? How do you like to relax? That's a good question because music is so all-encompassing for me. Uh, you know, it's like listening to a different sort of music or something. You know, I, I love going to the opera and I love going to classical, like symphony concerts and stuff, watching orchestras. But I guess probably you know restaurants, food. Uh, my eldest son Harry has an amazing Italian restaurant. He's married to an Italian girl, and uh, she cooks her grandmother's recipes. It's it's not like a sort of spaghetti bolognese and garlic bread Italian restaurant. It's a they cook beautiful near um yeah Neapolitan sort of home cooking you know so yeah restaurants and um all kinds of cultural stuff you know visiting cities you know european cities i love to do and american cities for that matter you know mm. visiting the art galleries and sort of hanging out you know mm. i'm not a sort of relaxing by the beach type person mm. you know <laughs> yeah. so what would be the best way for my listeners to follow your adventures online Online, I think uh, my Facebook page, the Jack Hughes Facebook, is probably best. Uh, I, I do that myself, and you can contact me on that. And uh, and I do, uh, <clears throat> you know, advertise everything that's coming up on, on that. You know, uh, there's a Wang Chung Facebook page that Nick and I are a little more neglectful of, you know, but that has stuff up coming up on it, you know. And I have Instagram and um, and uh, X as well. So uh, yeah, f follow me on all those things. Okay, great. Yeah. All right. Jack, I am my interviews with my favorite question. And the question mm -hmm. is this, if the entire planet was listening to this broadcast, what would be the one thing you would like to say to the people of earth? Mm. I saw this question when I was reading through your, um, this is what to expect kind of thing, you know? 
So obviously it's one of those questions where the more you think about it, the more difficult it gets, you know. But uh, uh, what did I do? Well, it was a quote, actually, a Shakespeare quote, which was more or less along the, from Hamlet about um, uh, there are more things on heaven, there are more things in on heaven and earth than are dreamt of in your philosophy. Um, so I, I, I guess that's what I want to say. It's like, just open your minds to different ideas, um, the diversity to to let other people in, to collaborate and <laughs> relax. <laughs> I think that's the same advice I give myself. You know? It's amazing. <laughs> Jack, you are a new wave treasure and your place in music history is pretty much locked in place. So congratulations on one hell of a successful career and all my best for your success to come. Thanks for coming on the show today. And this has been an absolute treat. Thank you, Derek. It was a real pleasure to chat with you. And just like that, Deval Nation, we come to the end of episode 212. I want to thank Jack for coming on the show and speaking with me. I was completely blown away with the elegant way he recollected such a storied part of music history, and I am so thrilled he was able to come on the show and share his story with us. So, Jack, thanks again for coming on the show, and best of luck to you. Okay, tune again next time as we showcase another extraordinary person. We drop our episodes on Mondays and Thursdays, so be sure to keep checking your favorite podcast streaming channel for this episodes to drop. Also, I think it's fair to ask you, the listener, have you enjoyed this episode? I truly hope you have, so please go and hit that subscribe button to keep up to date for when new episodes drop. Also, if you're feeling generous, drop us a review. We love reading what our listeners have to say about us, good or bad. We are still enjoying our partnership with the Amazing Tea Public. The Derek Duvall Show is a great little store on there. And we have everything with our logo on it, including magnets, stickers, and mugs. Plus, we have some really fun t-shirts on there that Mrs. Duvall and I added ourselves. So please go to our website, DerekDuvallShow.com. Go to the banner of the left that says Merch. Click that, and you'll be taken to our store on Tea Public. And once again, I want to thank them for being such great partners with the show. On behalf of myself and the entire team here at the Derek Duvall Show, I want to say to each and every one of you listening, one of my favorite progressive rock bands, Porcupine Tree, just released their live album, Closure Continuation, live in Amsterdam this past Friday. And let me tell you, Duval Nation, it is stunning. I highly advise you all to check it out. I ordered the Blu-ray concert, and while it's shipping from overseas and will be here in about a week or so, I had the live album downloaded from iTunes, and it's a sonic wonder. Stephen Wilson did such a great job. I went to this tour, and I tell you, this band is at the peak of their powers. Give it a listen you will not regret it. Nostar, God bless, and see you next time, Planet Earth. This has been a recording of The Derek Duval Show, and we thank you for listening. Please go to our website, DerekDuvalShow.com, for links to merchandise and to explore past episodes. Please find us on social media on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Derek Duval Show.